classical music had nothing to do with American popular songs. Listening to Gershwin when I was a kid was life-changing. Until a jazz man came along. I had never heard a piece of music that created that sort of reaction in my body, in my being. And rode around. And I didn't know what it was. So in blue. This is the story of a man from Tin Pan Alley who bit off a little more than people thought he could chew. <laughs> George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue is 100 years old in 2024. I'm Jeff Spurgeon, and for the next hour, we'll tell you the stories behind its first performance and explore how artists have approached and reimagined the work since. This is Strike Up the Band, a century of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. George Gershwin first played his Rhapsody in Blue on February 12, 1924, in Eolian Hall on West 43rd Street in New York City. But Gershwin wasn't the driving force behind the writing of that work. The commission came from a band leader named Paul Whiteman. He wanted to take pop music and elevate it. He wanted to take jazz and elevate that also because there was a lot of criticism on jazz. There were articles after articles from the Ladies Home Journal and, and made it, jazz must go. That's Vince Giordano. He plays jazz of the 1920s and 30s with his band, the Nighthawks. This was like what happened in rock and roll much later, and the older people just had a revolt. This is ruining the country. This is the worst. Paul Whiteman appreciated jazz and wanted it to be understood and accepted, so he decided to put on a concert. He called it an experiment in modern music. Putting the Whiteman band in context, they were incredibly popular. They were among the biggest record stars of, of that time, 1924. But it was actually, I think, Vincent Lopez, another popular band leader, who had the same idea to do a concert of jazz and classical music mixed together. And when Whiteman got wind of it, he booked Aeolian Hall and scooped Vincent Lopez. So it very well could have been Vincent Lopez, who is the name that we would all be talking about today. That's the great music revivalist and singer Michael Feinstein. Now, you'd think that if someone commissioned you to write a piece, you'd remember it, right? Gershwin, unfortunately, did not. Famously, Whiteman uh, gave an interview in which he said George Gershwin was writing a piece of music for his upcoming concert, which George read and then said, what the hell is this? And no wonder, according to the late conductor and author Maurice Paris, who told us Paul Whiteman didn't make a formal arrangement. There was an offhand commission. By the way, I'm doing a concert. Would you write us a piece with you playing the piano? He knew that Gershwin is a great pianist. He knew that already. But he didn't know he's a great classic, or, you know, extended uh, repertoire uh, composer. So, with maybe not even a handshake deal, Gershwin forgot until he read the paper. He was on a train reading the newspaper and <laughs> fell out of his chair when he said, oh my God, that's that piece that Paul Wyman asked me to write. The train part of that tale is a little uncertain, but Gershwin scholar Ryan Raul Banyagale says the newspaper part is true. 
His brother Ira read a news story to him in the January 4th New York Tribune that, you know, he was supposed to be composing a jazz concerto. That news story does exist. It's true. It was there. We don't know if that was when he found out about it or not. We do know that it was all done very quickly. He spent no more than about 10 full days on the piece um, over the course of about four or five weeks between the, the supposed commission date and the, the premiere. Only 10 days over four weeks? Well, Gershwin was busy working on a show he hoped to bring to Broadway. Michael Feinstein told us George wasn't the big draw for the Whiteman concert anyway. Gershwin was not particularly well known, and everybody expected that the piece composed by Victor Herbert or the appearance of Zez Confrey, who was famous for Kitten on the Keys, would be the highlights of the, of the program. Even advertisements that were taken out at the time that Rhapsody was to be premiered trumpet the fact that Zez Confrey is creating a new piece for the program, and there were posters all over touting Zez Confrey's appearance. Whiteman took out an insurance policy by having Zez Confrey, who also had a huge name at that time. So he was counting on that to, to draw, and he had no idea what, uh, what Gershwin would show up with. Of course, within a week, of, a week before the concert, when they were rehearsing it, word got around town that they got something extraordinary in their program. George Gershwin, who was a Tin Pan Alley songwriter, most famous for a song he had written uh, five years earlier, Swanee, was suddenly uh, not only up to the challenge, but wrote a piece that even before it was premiered, it, as people went to the rehearsals, were already buzzing about. Rhapsody in Blue was generating buzz, but the process of composing and arranging a piece like that proved to be a collaborative affair. So George Gershwin was a theater composer, and common practice as a theater composer at the time, as it is still today, was to write the songs and hand it over to someone who was an expert in arranging it for the orchestral ensemble that would be in the pit. And that was exactly the same case with Rhapsody in Blue. Few people would be an expert in that, and one of them would be Ferdy Grofe. Uh, Gershwin, after the Rhapsody in Blue, was accused of being only a part-time composer because he had not orchestrated the Rhapsody in Blue. Ferdy orchestrated it. Ferdy Grofay is one of these incredible musicians, incredible figures in history that has popped up in his own right for being a famous composer for something like the Grand Canyon Suite. He's certainly well known, obviously, for arranging Rhapsody in Blue. But he's someone who had an incredibly long and tremendous career getting his start as an arranger with Whiteman primarily and kind of setting the sound and the tone of what dance band music, jazz music was in the 1920s. He's one of the first people to write down jazz arrangements. Uh, prior to that time, musicians would just get together in what they called the huddle formation, you know, talk about what they were going to play, plot it out, and then take a swing at it. And Grofay wanted a little bit more permanence. Whiteman certainly wanted more permanence in being able to consistently play the pieces. What Grofay did in translating Gershwin's two piano score to a full orchestral score for the Whiteman Orchestra is, is pretty, pretty spectacular. He had this idea of how to take an American dance band and create these sections of 
like the brass section, which was two trumpets and a trombone at the time, and three saxophones and all the doubling, mixed in with the rhythm section of a piano, banjo, tuba or bass and drums, and create this symphonic jazz idea. One of the reasons that Ferdy orchestrated is he knew what the different guys played in the form of doubling. It was very complicated to write for three saxes who were playing over 20 instruments. Ferdy Grofe was Paul Weichmann's chief arranger, so he knew very well what the musicians were capable of. Good thing, too, since Gershwin was sending along the new work in pieces. Gershwin would scurry these parts out and throw them at Grofe. Grofe would orchestrate it and they'd rehearse it at the Palais Royal where they were playing on 48th Street. The way the arrangement worked was Gershwin indicated a few of the instruments in his two piano score that he wanted to be present at various points in time. Gershwin had written the run for the clarinet, it's in the pencil score. That opening glissando. And later on he mentions names of instruments in that pencil score. Because he had the sound of the Whiteman band in his ear, he knew what he was writing for. But it took Ferdy to make it realize. And it was the sound of the band that helped to determine the direction of the piece in some instances. For example, the opening clarinet glissando was played by the member of the Whiteman band, Boss Gorman. Apparently he got bored during rehearsals as they were working on this piece and was just kind of messing around as a klezmer musician himself and played it that way. Ross Gorman looked at the piece. He was the clarinet player and he played it the way Gershwin wrote it. And then all, all of a sudden, because he was a very quirky guy, he played all these instruments and had a lot of command of his instrument. It was an amazing. And he decides to just make this slide. So in the original score, those were all discrete notes that it was up? It was a regular scale going up from low, low F to the high B flat. But Gorman said to Gershwin, I can slide this. I can glissando this if you want me to. And Gershwin says, go right ahead. And Gorman, who obviously had played a lot of Jewish weddings, he adds some klezmorum to this whole thing. <laughs> when he gets uh, all the little turns and bends and twists. And this outrageous opening suddenly is born. You know, that's the greatest idea of music, that the players and the composers feed on each other. Also collaborating on Gershwin's new work was his lyric-writing brother, Ira. And yes, the Rhapsody has no lyrics, but that wasn't Ira's contribution. Michael Feinstein, who knew and worked with Ira, tells us. So the most famous theme from the Rhapsody is the Andante, which occurs two-thirds of the way through the piece. George was working at that point with Ferdy Grofe, who was orchestrating the piece for its first performance, which was only a couple of weeks away. And Ira said, you know, you need something that will break up all the, the jazzy sounds. You need a theme that'll be a great contrast. And he actually remembered and hummed the theme that George had composed two years earlier, which he barely remembered. And when he hummed it, George said, quote, that corny thing? And Ira said, yes, I think it'd be interesting to consider because it's so pretty. 
Ferdy Grofay was present. And he said, yeah, George, that, I like that. You should put that in. So it was at the suggestion of Ira that the most famous theme was inserted into the Rhapsody. Ira also named the piece Rhapsody in Blue. They were at a party in Greenwich Village where George was playing what he had thus completed of the Rhapsody. And somebody said, well, what are you going to call it? And he said, well, maybe American Rhapsody, American Fantasy. And Ira, who had been to the uh, Metropolitan Museum and had, had seen an exhibition of the paintings of Whistler, and it was a study in marvelous and this that and he with he, he said just without hesitation said rhapsody in blue and george looked at him and said well that's that that's interesting that might be a good title and it stuck on february 12th 1924 paul whiteman set the stage for his experiment in modern music aeolian hall was a was a block thick that hall was free that particular day it was a, it was a lincoln's birthday and he gave it as an afternoon concert. He wore the afternoon suit that conductors used to wear at the time with striped pants and an ascot. <laughs> he really played it out as, this is a concert, and my guys are going to be dressed in concert dress. The Rhapsody itself caught the audience by surprise. It was the second to last piece on a program that was very long and got a little bit boring. And when Rhapsody in Blue appeared towards the end of the program, it galvanized the audience in a way that was uh, extraordinary. It might have been extraordinary, but it wasn't entirely complete. Instead of finishing the conductor's score for Paul Whiteman, George Gershwin famously simply wrote a cue. There's we one place where he says, wait for Nod. Wow. It's on the score. Yeah. It's just before yeah, Dante. He does this big cadenza, 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 and then he does it. And then he gives a nod to Whiteman. <laughs> now you can play. Suddenly Gershwin woke with a start And knew he still hadn't finished writing his part He hopped in a taxi The band was playing his unfinished jazz concerto But the common cool composer knew just what he would do He simply improvised his solos at the keyboard Then he nodded to the orchestra to show he was through So the sound was American were completely from the classics but the themes and variations were decidedly blue
What is it about Rhapsody in Blue that has made and maintained its popularity? For jazz pianist Marcus Roberts, Gershwin's triumph was uplifting jazz in the midst of a time when many listeners didn't understand or value the new genre. I think that the beautiful thing that Gershwin and Whiteman did is they introduced something in the concert hall that gave a certain legitimacy to jazz, which at the time, you know, people just considered it for obvious, we want to get into the politics and the socialization of it, but for obvious reasons, people didn't really think it was all that. The musicians knew better, which is why it, it went from Fletcher Henderson and Louis Armstrong to Duke and eventually to Charlie Parker and Monk and Coltrane, right? and eventually to our generation. Pianist Lee Musiker thinks it's the mix of styles. It's an incredible blend of Broadway, uh, classical music, jazz, Tin Pan Alley, film music that Gershwin was involved in. This is always and will always be Rhapsody in Blue. When Rhapsody in Blue is played on the piano, in the original jazz band version, the piano sounds classical in its approach because it's pitted against a jazz band, the original version with saxophones and banjo. So when the piano comes in on its first entrance in A flat minor, it, it's not a jazz lick. It's class, more classical in nature, even though that melodic fragment is jazzy, but it's, it's music. However, in the orchestral version, with a symphonic orchestra, not necessarily with saxophones and banjo, then the piano sounds like the jazzy instrument against the symphonic orchestra. So that the very same piece and the same solo piano part can sound in a completely different and opposite context based on the background and the setting. This is truly fantastic, and it's a tribute to the genius of Gershwin being able to cover all the bases. For musicologist Ryan Raul Banyagale, the Rhapsody's success has a lot to do with its broad appeal. There's a lot of entry points for people. They can grab onto it from a lot of different angles, depending on the arrangement, depending on the particular melody that they're interested in. You know, some people love that opening clarinet line. Some people really just only want to get to the slow love melody at the middle. So there's all these wonderful points of entry and then points of, of contact back into memories of folks that are associating those, those melodies with different things or different genres or different traditions. The Whiteman Orchestra took the piece on the road up and down the eastern seaboard for a few months. And then in June of uh, 1924, they sat down and made the first recording. And that first recording did okay. It's in the history books has been said it sold a million copies. Not quite. It was closer to maybe 50 to 75,000, but it was still pretty popular for a, a new hybrid classical jazz work. While the success of Rhapsody in Blue might seem inevitable to us today, it wasn't a sure thing. American music revivalist Michael Feinstein. And after the Rhapsody was premiered, George said, uh, my publisher's going to publish Rhapsody in Blue. And Ira said, well, for God's sake, who's going to play it? Because it was this weird 15-minute dance thing, but it wasn't in dance tempo. You couldn't dance to it. What was this thing? It was neither fish nor fowl. George was 
repeating performances of it and, it, and everybody was blindsided that this piece was suddenly getting all these performances because it didn't fit into what was traditional. Rhapsody in Blue really caught on. Other people wanted to play it, but not every band was as skilled as Paul Whiteman's. Ferdie Grofet had more work to do. So there's the original Grofet arrangement for the unique musicians and instruments of the Grofet Ensemble. And then the arrangement that followed that was a pit orchestra version. And it was a version that was made for a more standard pit orchestra that all theaters would have had at ready. And the piece could then be played before a show, it could be played during intermission, it could just be played at any point in time using a, a more popular combination of instruments, a more regularized group of instruments. Over time, Grofet needed to arrange something for Gershwin to perform the piece with symphony orchestras. Once Gershwin started writing his works for symphony orchestra, and he did learn how to orchestrate and write for orchestras um, with the piano concerto to follow, and American in Paris, and, and these other wonderful works. And so they needed a version of Rhapsody in Blue that could be played alongside these other works that Gershwin had composed for symphony orchestra. Gershwin started touring it around, and then in 1927, they made another recording which was using the new electric microphone technology. And that's the one that really took off in terms of the recordings. But we have to remember that in the 1920s, you know, radio is popular, recordings are around, but it's the sheet music that really circulated, and it's the dance bands that really circulated. And so the popularity of this piece really grew almost in a kind of a grassroots way. People would buy the sheet music, they'd play it at home, they'd make their own arrangements of it, bands would play arrangements of it, because people were asking for it, they wanted to hear it. And so it really spread out, not just by the one recording itself, but through a lot of different related musical efforts. Gershwin's Rhapsody continues to inspire musicians today, such as jazz pianist and bandleader Marcus Roberts, who just this past January brought a version of the Rhapsody that he's been performing for a long time. I met Peter Gelb, who was running Sony Classical at that time. This would have been 1994. And he said, well, what did you want to do? And I told him that I still thought with Rhapsody in Blue, there was still more that could be done with the piece. It's a great piece. People love it, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do something different with it, because I still felt like people would still recognize the piece. And the fact that you truly bring it into the jazz landscape wouldn't lose people. We would just go through it section by section. And I was honestly still arranging the piece as we were recording it. <laughs> this is uh, the way jazz kind of works, you know. We just kind of hear it and go, well, you know what? I was going to do that, but I'm actually not going to do that. It's a lot like life. You were going to turn right, you see the streets blocked. And you say, well, I guess I have to go another way. I don't know who did it or if I did it. Somebody started swinging the melody. And, you know, that wasn't part of the plan. But somebody just went. And so I thought, well, maybe we could just do that. 
And then I came up with this middle section of it where we put like some Ellington type chords in it and then everybody soloed on it. I mean, it really became honestly like a jazz piece at that point. It was, I believe, one of the first true, complete integrations of the piece into the jazz environment. And one of the reasons for it is, you know, the way I approach the cadenzas, you know, with free improvisation, which Gershwin himself also did, right? That was what he originally, I think, wanted the piece to be, like a free standing piece where he could do his thing. I could bring bass and drums into the mix with the piano as a rhythm section, right? Which means that the rhythm section is really controlling the stylization and the sound of what it's supporting. With Gershwin's theme being so folk and American and blues oriented and rhythmic, That's why jazz musicians love playing Gershwin, man. It's easy to find syncopation, which is the key for us, to find what Jelly Roll Morton called the sound of surprise. So anytime I play a cadenza at this point with Rhapsody, it's always completely different. And I don't know if it's going to be coming from the, from the standpoint of uh, the gospel tradition or, 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 or if it's going to be some combination of gospel mixed with some abstract French harmonies. I, I don't know. But I just make sure that the people can follow it and the structure of the piece remains intact and I think that's why it's been a pretty successful you know innovative idea as far as bringing two worlds together they really shouldn't be separated in my opinion Lara Downs has been thinking about Rhapsody in Blue in the context of what was happening in the larger world in 1924. Is a hundred years a long time or a short time? I think it's both. When we're talking about America, the beginning of the 20th century is kind of like the beginning of everything that we know. America's changing so fast. New York City's changing so fast. And in 1924, in the spring, Literally three months after the premiere of this piece, the, the Johnson-Reed Act was passed, which was legislation that shut down Ellis Island, essentially. Completely stopped immigration from Asia, drastically cut back on immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, and it's really overtly and specifically to keep America very white and very one thing.
in that story that we know about, you know, he finds out he's supposed to write this piece. There's this article about how Gershwin's writing this concerto and he doesn't know anything about it. But what else is in that newspaper, right? What else is, what's on the front page of that newspaper? I think I always have thought of the 1920s as this time when everything was coming alive, right? Everyone's coming out of a global pandemic and dancing the Charleston and, you know, it's, it's, everything's booming and roaring and fun and free. And it was, and at the same time, there's this pushback to that. That historical context drove Downs to ask, if Rhapsody in Blue is a reflection of the world in 1924, how do we make it speak to us in the language of 2024? What is the difference between Gershwin's New York City and ours? How many more people have come to this country in these last 100 years and brought their lives and stories and journeys and music with them. It was also a question of revisiting the score with an ear to what Gershwin was hearing and what he was trying to translate. He's hearing these new rhythms, whether they're coming from jazz or they're coming from Latin influences, and he's trying to figure out how to translate them into the language that he knows as a songwriter and as a piano player. So it was kind of a question of opening up our ears and saying, well, what, what is he hearing that's turning into that particular rhythm? I just started thinking about these intersections and, and where Gershwin was coming from. And, and simultaneously with having this idea about revisiting the origin story of this piece, Looking for collaborators, Lara Downs turned to Puerto Rican composer and musician Edmar Colon. I met Edmar two years ago now in Boston. We were both working on a program that was centered around Ellington and Strayhorn. And Edmar had done this incredible arrangement that had taken Ellington's caravan back to its Puerto Rican roots with a whole group of Afro-Caribbean percussionists. And it was just obvious, this is the person who's going to do this with me. This is the person who can understand all of the materials that fed into this piece and really expand on them and explore them and create something new. So I was playing the Gershwin score, and at the same time, Edmar just started, like, jamming and trying different, trying to overlay different rhythms on top or interweave them with Gershwin's rhythms, and all of a sudden, I understood where that stuff was coming from. I mean, he's really dug deep into that in his reconstruction of the piece, and it's pretty thrilling. There are some places in the score where just by shifting the harmonization and giving intentionally some more depth and darkness to the sound, you can really hear the same tune in a very different way. And then this very multi-layered rhythmic component gives you this very clear understanding of where this whole thing started, how these drums got here in the first place and what they mean in the cultures that they come from. 
For example, the bata drums have uh, this very, very powerful history, and they can be used in a religious context or in a secular context. So Edmar was really careful about that. But there's this long, drawn-out section where those drums come to the forefront. And, you know, it's almost like you're imagining the passage of this music from Africa to the American South, and then up to New York City, and then, you know, just exploding out into the world. What does 100 years or 200 years or 300 years mean to a piece of music? Because I think that's something that we have to investigate all the time in classical music. We can rearrange the notes on the page for different ensembles and arrange the music through different cuts and paces, however we want to do it. But how we as humans arrange our lives using the music that we care about and how that allows us to tell the story of Gershwin, but also really importantly, the story of ourselves. It's still relevant right now. If you listen to it, you can dig it. I don't want us to get lost in history like we're going into the Louvre and we're looking at some great artwork that we, we may admire it and enjoy, it, but we don't think it has a thing to do with us. That's one of the wonderful gifts of Rhapsody in Blue is that it allows us to find our spot and our arrangement in the larger musical world with a piece that speaks to popular music fans, it speaks to classical music fans, right? It's just all these things come into one and it allows us to navigate this really complex world around us. George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue has delighted audiences and inspired musicians for a hundred years. Let's hear that original recording of Rhapsody in Blue from 1924, the Paul Whiteman Band with George Gershwin at the keyboard.
This is Strike Up the Band, a century of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Strike Up the Band was produced by Lauren Purcell Joyner and Eileen Delahunty. I'm Jeff Spurgeon. This show is a production of WQXR in New York.